evening. I'm Danny Carter, and for this episode, I am joined by the author of the upcoming The Shadow of Perseus and author of Daughters of Sparta, uh, the one and only Claire Haywood. Um, I mean, we all know I absolutely love a uh, Greek mythology retelling. Um, and The Shadow of Perseus, I've been lucky enough to receive an early copy, and oh my word, um, this is such a good book. Um, it's a smaller book, but it packs an absolute punch. Um, if you wanted to see the uh, the darker side of Perseus, <laughs> this is the read for you. It has everything you could want from a Greek myth retelling. Um, I have so many questions for Claire. Uh, I need to know everything about her inspiration, her choices during the uh, during the writing of this novel. And I'm super, super excited to welcome her onto my novel evening. A massive hello to Claire. Hi. Hi. Nice How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I haven't been up to much today. It's been very rainy in Bristol. So it's been rainy day. everywhere. Like this is March. What is going on? Yeah, I had hope a few weeks ago because suddenly it was a little bit sunny, but it's gone away again. And you say you're in Bristol because I was mm-hmm. there last weekend. It was very nice. Yeah, yeah, there have been nice days. And I've got a few flowers coming out in the garden. So that makes me excited for spring, but it is slow coming. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we're going to get spring in like May this year. I just Mm. don't feel it yet. Yeah, yeah. But I I am looking forward to it, especially, uh, yeah, being able to sit in the garden and work in the garden will be nice. Well, I was going to say, because I know for writers, I mean, the opportunity to get outside and work is probably fairly few and far between, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do most of my work on my sofa in my living room <laughs> nice. um, but I would like the opportunity when the weather is nicer to, to have some fresh air as well. Yeah. And obviously your books have been set in much warmer climates do you get to go and do little reccees? Do you get to go and? Um, I haven't in the last few years uh, partly because of Covid yeah. obviously um, so while I was writing my latest book which is set all across the Mediterranean um, I wasn't able to travel for that at all um, but luckily Google Maps and Google Earth, um, they all exist. So I spent a lot of time kind of virtually in those places on on Street View, walking through Greece and, you know, <laughs> so um, yeah, at least I had a little taste of it, but it would I mean, maybe nice if you're, there. you know, I don't know if your next book will be set in the same climbs, but you know, it'd be nice if you could venture into warmer places and sit on a, you know, beautiful Greek vista and Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I have got some travel plans in the calendar, um, not necessarily directly for writing purposes, but just to get back to the Mediterranean and to, as you say, sort of soak up that climate again, because it has been quite a few years. <laughs> I'm actually going to Greece in, oh my God, I'm going June. So I'm going very soon. And I haven't been since I was a kid. I have very fond memories of visiting there. And I've always had a real love for Greek history and Greek culture. There's something about it. I don't know. It mm-hmm. just it's really homely, right? When you go there, I guess because we read all these stories, when you go, you, you're so familiar with it. Yeah, yeah, I think there is an element of that. Um, yeah, they're beautiful places to visit, but also you feel that imbued history just walking around, you know, um, there, there are ancient sites pretty much everywhere. Um, the same is true in, in other parts of the Mediterranean as well. I've spent time in Turkey, which is a similar kind of vibe. And I always love the, the food over there as well. And the whole experience, I think it just makes it a great place to visit. And obviously you must be in love with it because you've obviously written the Shadow Perseus, which mm-hmm. I adored. As I said to you before we start recording, I devoured this book 
with such speed. I feel like I need to read it again because I really was like, I need to find out what happens. Mm-hmm. And so firstly, my kind of first question is, the story of Perseus is one I feel like we all kind of know. And I say that in air quotes because this is audio and people can't see that. And yeah. we think we know it so well. Was it kind of daunting to take that myth and kind of change it up? Uh Yes and no. Um, I think it was because particularly um, Medusa and that part Mm -hmm. of the story is well known. So people have certain expectations going into it. Um, I think that that raises the stakes somewhat. People already have an idea in their head of how what those characters are and how the story will pan out. So that's something to contend with. Um, And you don't have that so much if you're talking about less known characters um like Danai for example is one of my protagonists I don't think that many people would be very familiar with her story so it's a bit more of a blank slate there um but on the other hand when I was doing my research I actually kind of felt empowered by all the different versions of the story that I found um particularly Medusa's story because of of the of the characters and of the sections of Perseus's myth, she is the most known and throughout history, including the ancient world, she has been the most talked about and revisited. Um, so actually when I was looking at ancient versions of her story, there were many, many versions that I'd never come across before. And they all took it in a slightly different direction and imagined it in a different way. Um, so that kind of made me feel like it was okay for me to do that um, because people had already been doing it people for have done it. years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is unlike, I don't want to give anything away because I genuinely feel this is a book you have to read and experience because you have told it in such a clever way, in such a emotional, I was actually really emotional. You know, you mentioned Medusa and there's some really emotional moments in the book. And I think it's very interesting the way that you've kind of turned this hero character. And I think, you know, we've all got our heroes, right? That we're like, we look up to and you see the statues of Perseus and you see him looking strong and you really delve into what can create a hero, especially back then. Did you know from the outset the kind of man you were making in Perseus when you started writing? I think a lot of thought went into that while I was developing the book in the first place. obviously you develop your characters and in this case I've got three protagonists to think about but there in the background there's also this fourth character of Perseus who never actually gets her uh, perspective in the story you know the story is never told from his point of view and yet at the same time he's the thing that links all of these other characters together so I, I put a lot of thought into where he comes from and each part of his psychology um you know how he grows up and the events in his life that ultimately sort of shape the man he becomes um and I hope that that comes through in the book even though we never actually get it inside his head you know uh, we have to we have to view it through the women um but he was certainly a, a lynch point um I mean for example I I read a whole book on psychology um from a psycho or a therapist who uses the myth of Perseus to talk to her patients um specifically about relationships between mothers and sons and particularly single mothers and sons without fathers um so there was all sorts of really interesting and delicate things that I was trying to think about and things that I don't necessarily have first-hand experience of you know I I'm not a man I've never been anyone's son you know um so I was I was trying to get into his shoes uh, basically yeah and going back to the women I think the interesting point for me is you know for anyone who's familiar with the myths you know Danai was was very much kind of a victim 
when you read back, you know, to the traditional myths and you're saying with Andromeda, you know, rescued by the, from the sea beast, whereas Medusa is this kind of hideous monster. And you've kind of flipped these women around, you know, I think the women who were traditionally maybe weaker feel so much stronger. And then the women you'd expect to be these kind of strong, tough, kind of a more vulnerable. And again, was that always kind of a considered choice or was that just how they came out as you were writing? Um, in terms of the the flipping the narrative on the sort of damsel in distress, that was a very um, uh, an active choice on my part, and um, particularly with Andromeda, although it also came through in in Danai's story in slightly different ways as well. Um, but in terms of the sort of vulnerability versus strength and even monstrosity. I think with all the characters across the book, I wanted to show that those things can exist within the same person. Yeah. Um, that includes the three women to varying degrees and, you know, it becomes expressed in different ways. Um, but also Perseus himself, you know, he is not simply a villain. Um, yeah. He is a human being um, with vulnerabilities and that is a large part of his character and to certain extents, his um, in relationships with these women is built around those vulnerabilities um, and how the women respond to that. I think that's really interesting is the relationships. You know, I think seeing how they are affected, you know, their relationships with other men, as well as we're reading, this really is a book that kind of, I feel, steps outside of just the kind of monster hero traditional myths and is really kind of about the nuance of relationships, right, in mm -hmm. families and they're complex, to say yeah, the least exactly. in this <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I think that's exactly the kind of fiction that I'm drawn to and it's it's the type of fiction that I like to consume um and whatever whatever the setting and whether you're talking about myth or you know contemporary Britain those are the stories that I'm interested in and if I can that I want to tell really well and in a in a complex and thoughtful way yeah you definitely you definitely feel that I mean you've lived within these myths uh you know you've set books within ancient Greece are you tired of them yet? Do you feel like you always find something new when you're picking up these myths and you're reading? Yeah, 100%. There is always something that I've never heard of before. Um, I mean, as I say, when I was researching Medusa, I hadn't heard of half of the, the versions that I came across. Um, and also in, in sort of later history as well, you know, there's a whole history of what we call reception in, in classics. Um, mm -hmm. Essentially, people taking up these stories and, and doing things with them, making plays or operas or um, artworks or anything like that, you know. So beyond the actual <laughs> ancient sources, there's there's 3000 years of stuff to look at and think about and respond to. Um, so I don't think I'll ever run out of um, content in that in that regard. Um, I mean, the, the reason that I started writing these books really was that I I did my degree in classics and at the end of my BA decided that's not enough. I need more classics. Um, so I, I did a master's so that I could stay in that, you know, world, did my master's and I still felt, you know, um, unsatisfied. I still needed more. Wow. Um, but rather than go down an academic route, which is one that I seriously considered, um, I wanted to find another way to do it that was maybe a bit more um, involved with public engagement, basically. So I looked at teaching classics. Um, I worked in a, a Roman museum for a few years um, and then ultimately managed to make my living writing stories about classics. So I managed to stick with it. <laughs> yeah. And what do you think it is that draws us still to these myths? Because, you know, they've lasted for so long. 
And yet we still find ways to, you know, retell them, new ways to see them and absorb them. And I can remember as a child, you know, my granddad teaching about Greek myths. And what do you think is it draws us like time and time again to these tales? I think it's such a tricky question. On the one hand, I think we can find within them kind of archetypes of the sort of stories that we've been telling throughout humanity. Like I say, people have been sort of adapting and readapting the same story for several millennia, but also not even just directly. Like I say, things like the damsel in distress trope, I would argue you could trace back to Andromeda and, you know, hero slaying the dragon comes from Bellerophon, you know, there's all these kind of, um, yeah, archetypes in the stories that we tell. Um, and I've always been interested in stories and the history of stories generally you know fairy tales and legends and all sorts of things not just classics so I think there's there must be something sort of inbuilt that we keep going back to those sort of tropes in a way but then on the other hand as I've said that there's so much that can surprise you as well there are some very bizarre stories that (laughs) seem, seem very strange to a modern reader but then I also want to understand those and and see why that might have been relevant to an ancient audience or you know where that kind of idea might have come from and they're super dark as well I mean I obviously as a child I think I got kind of the sanitized version of Mm -hmm. Greek myths and now as I'm an adult I'm like they're really dark they're really grisly you know there's a lot of child eating and you know there's a lot a lot of genocide and matricide and they're really dark and I guess Mm -hmm. we kind of all have a scandal still right You've, you've still got that dark twisted nature to them yeah, I, I definitely think that's an aspect of it. I mean, the dramatic, you know, it, it comes from Greek drama. It's it's all about the, the theatrical and something that will pull something out of us. You know, there's this idea of catharsis in, in Greek tragedy, the idea that we, if we experience this story that is very dark and quite unsettling, but with the remove of it being fiction and being set among people that we don't know in a place that we don't live, somehow we can kind of have this experience where we can sort of purge something from ourselves, some sort of darkness, and we don't have to experience it directly. Oh, I think it's so fascinating. And I say, I absolutely, I loved the book. Um, I could sing about it from the rooftops, (laughs) because I just think it's so, it's unlike any retelling I've read in a really long time, especially where Perseus is concerned. Um, I love the story of Denai as well. That's one of my favourites. So to see a different, a different twist on it was really intriguing. And I know you probably can't answer this, but you know, what comes next? Are you going to stay in the same sort of realms? Do you kind of know where you're going to go? What can you tell us? Yeah. So I know, I know what I'm working on. Um, It is in very early stages. Um, I'm not ready to sort of announce it yet, um, but it is still within the realm of classical myth and literature um still within the ancient mediterranean um so yeah it will be along similar lines and hopefully a a similar kind of style in terms of um thinking about relationships between people and how that leads to the decisions that they make um but yeah I won't reveal too much (laughs) oh exciting though exciting I think uh but you know Shadow Perseus is going to come out. It's going to do incredibly. Uh, your brain is probably filled with that at the moment. So power to yeah. you for writing alongside all of that. And uh, I've got a feeling now for your novel evening. You know, you said that you are very into classics. So I'm imagining we're going to have some of that fed into this. Uh, there is a little bit. Um, Ooh, I, won't, okay. I won't give it away yet. But actually, I mostly stayed away from that because I think it's 
that's kind of the obvious but yeah. I'd also like to talk about other influences and other other literature that I love. Um, so yeah, be a bit of a mixture. So the first thing I always ask before we uh, delve into our guests is where are you going to take us for your novel evening? Okay, well, this one was quite an instinctive choice. Um, when, when asked the question, I was like, where do I want to go? And I thought I would choose Rivendell from The Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> um it's 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 been quite some years since I read the trilogy um and obviously I I love the the film series as well um but I just have this memory of reading that passage from the book um and it just sounded like the best place to be it's kind of this land where time stands still there's no worries there's music and storytelling and food and drinks and good company and everything is safe and cozy but also you know beautiful because it's this elven city um and you know the point of that in the book is that it would be oh so easy to just stay in Rivendell and not continue their very dangerous journey um but yeah the way it was described I've I've always wanted to to visit so I think that's where I would host my evening big sames uh, I'm very glad I get to tag along for this evening I do think the films captured it so beautifully from when I read it how I kind of pictured and imagined it and I think it really captured it's the light I think Mm -hmm. the way they film with that like that soft golden glow and like you say it's so unfair that that's where they rock up first because if they'd never been there it would be so much easier to keep going (laughs) so cruel Tolkien to be like let's take them to paradise and then we'll take them to hell yeah yeah yeah, I mean, I, I could have chosen somewhere like the Shire as well, but yeah. I, I feel like the Shire is is more accessible in the real world. You know, it yeah. sort of represents rural England and you can... Yeah, you just head down to Dorset, there. you can well, basically yeah, hang out. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you can still visit places that are similar to that, whereas Rivendell has this kind of magical element. Um, so yeah, that was my pick. <laughs> Beautiful, Okay. Okay, so we're going to arrive there and we'll set up our table and it's all beautiful. Who's the first person who's going to join us? Okay, so I think first on my guest list, I mean, the way I decided to structure this was to invite an author and then invite one of my favourite characters of theirs. Oh, I like this. So my first author is Thomas Hardy, um, who is one of my kind of... um, how can I describe it? I, I don't want to say like hero, but you know, I really, uh, I look up to him as a writer um, and I've read quite a few of his books and I think he sort of inspired me when I was in my formative years um, and kind of showed me what a novel can be and what it can make you feel and how um, deep a character can be. Um, so I would like Hardy to be there. Beautiful. I, I'm always so woefully ashamed. So I grew up in Dorchester. I lived very close to Max Gate and obviously Hardy country. He's kind of like the main export. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they were like, we have Hardy. I've read so few of his books, but I did read Tess. I mean, at school, it was very much like you'll read Hardy because you live in Dorchester. And I fell in love with Tess because he seems so ahead of his time for writing women. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I I think not even just women, but he was 
he was quite brave in some of his books just in in terms of talking about social issues both in terms of the way that women were treated in terms of their kind of sexual experience and how they're viewed in that regard um in Tess the D'Urbervilles obviously but um also in terms of class issues and people's um access or inaccess to to lives in which they can flourish. I think that's definitely something that that concerned him. Yeah. yeah. And as a rural girl, I think the idea of this kind of man living in this cottage in these woods, but being so insightful on things like that mm-hmm. is just, and to be, you know, insightful enough to see it happening around him in these small yeah. towns and villages, let alone in sort of larger cities, I think is so incredible. Yeah. And I think I admire him as well because he did come from quite humble beginnings. Um, you know, his his father was uh, a stonemason and although he was given an education until 16, he you know, his family couldn't afford anything beyond that. So he, he had to apprentice as an architect instead. But then he continued teaching himself and learning. And I read that he used to get up very early in the morning so that he could learn ancient Greek, which is something that I admire. <laughs> oh, just the thought of that is just, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's yeah. just amazing. Okay, so Thomas has arrived. Who's the uh, character he's going to bring with him? Um, this has to be Jude Forley from Jude the Obscure. Okay. Um, I think he, he is in some respects a little bit autobiographical from Hardy. He is a stonemason himself um, and he is poor and working class, but he has intellectual aspirations. He's He's naturally very bright and from a young age, he um, has this drive to try and learn classics. He manages to procure a, a Latin or a Greek book from a traveler. Yeah, I think he maybe based it on a version of himself if if he hadn't had um, the opportunities that he managed to to find for himself. Basically, yeah. I don't think that anything was really handed to him, but um, it's a it's a poorer version of himself. Um, so Jude has these kind of intellectual aspirations he he sees the city of oxford in the distance from his little rural village um and he he wants to go and study classics there basically um but is kind of summarily rejected by um the deans or the professors uh, and they basically tell him to to just carry on being a stonemason because he's already got a living and he, he doesn't need anything more than that um but essentially jude does want more um so a lot of the novel and a lot of the the pathos that I found in the novel was Jude's unfulfillment, essentially. Um, and because I'm someone that had the opportunity to to study classics, um, despite coming from a you know a reasonably humble background, it felt like a you know again a version of myself that had fewer opportunities that might have been far more frustrated and limited in my in my life. So it was a very personal read for me, and that's why I wanted to to bring Jude. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I'm trying to picture the interactions that are going to be happening because that must be those two meeting would be beautiful. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, and I mean Jude has a very sad story um you know the book is, he needs is a, tragedy. a good night out right well, that is exactly <laughs> it I thought he would enjoy coming to Rivendell um and you know broadening his experience um so yeah he'd really make the most of it I think okay those are two ec- excellent choices um and obviously very personal choices uh for you it sounds like mm-hmm. okay who is going to be next so my next author uh, would be George Eliot or okay. Marianne Evans. Um, there's a bit of a theme here um, in that I I really like um, those kind of realist Victorian 
novels or 19th yeah. century novels um yeah so George Eliot would be my next author again I have a lot of admiration for her as a writer um I think her her books are amazing and similar to Hardy in terms of the the extremely complex and subtle interiority that she gives to her characters um is just something that really showed me you know what what a novel can do um and also I similarly I admire her as a person again someone that's kind of intellectually striving um again she she didn't come from a very privileged background um and she didn't have a lot of formal education but her her father did provide her with some education at least which you know at the time was quite <laughs> a blessing yeah yeah <laughs> uh, yeah better than nothing um and also her father was a, a manager of a an estate a very grand estate mm-hmm. um and because of that um Marianne had access to the library of the estate so in supplement to her kind of basic education she read a lot including classics um she could read this really vast rich library um which is obviously what allowed her to become the author that she became beautiful okay so she's arrived who's she gonna bring with her um so again there, there could have been a few choices um but mm-hmm. i chose maggie tulliver um from the mill on the floss okay. um again i think just like Jude was the one that spoke to me the most from Hardy's characters I think Maggie just kind of had a personal resonance for me um and there's a lot of parallels really with their stories but it's this time from a from a girl's perspective um she she grows up on this mill um not particularly wealthy family sort of you know middle class-ish um but isn't really allowed any education um meanwhile her brother is you know being sent to a tutor (laughs) um, and she's intensely jealous and she is far more um able academically she's naturally bright and she wants to learn all these things and she's she's a real bookworm but she's not given those opportunities um whereas her brother is and he completely squanders them and he's not interested at all um so there's you know there's a bit of angst there and she she's actually quite a an angry little girl yeah, <laughs> sometimes, it's, um, sometimes it's heartbreaking and sometimes it's quite amusing as well yeah. she she has all this interior frustration that no one around her is understanding um and there's a there's a whole thing when she's young about her hair how her hair won't curl in the proper way like her cousin's hair curls yeah. and her mum gets very frustrated so then little Maggie goes away and just chops all her hair off thinking oh yeah I'll show them um <laughs> but it, but it just ends up backfiring on her because then everyone's just laughing at her and then she's humiliated and you know she just doesn't have any power to be able to to show the world who she is and what she thinks of things and yeah so in that way again it's it's a sad story but one that's so rich and so human and someone else who I think really deserves a night in Rivendell yeah exactly I sense the theme (laughs) those two would really get along Jude and Maggie I think they they'd get along and they'd both have the best time Oh my goodness. Okay. Do you have other guests coming? Uh, yes, a few. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. No, no, no. This is Rivendell. There's plenty of space. So you've got more than enough room. Well, I thought I'd um, bring it a little bit more modern with my third author. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is uh, the late Sir Terry Pratchett. Um, <laughs> again, he's he's been, well, I think he has to have been an influence on me because I've read more of his books than any other author, <laughs> living or dead. Um, so I, I can imagine that he has shaped me as a writer um, in some way, because when I was a teenager, you know, I was just filling up on uh, Discworld novels. 
Um, so yeah, I, I very much admire him as a writer, um, but also he just seemed like a thoroughly decent guy. Um, yeah, and truly, I, I think he'd be a lovely nice addition. Yeah, yeah. And that imagination. Um, I mean, and also I feel like he would just stroll into Rivendell and be at home. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I don't think he'd be phased at all by the setting or the elves. He'd just be like, oh, we're doing this, okay. Yeah, yeah, I can really yeah. see him fitting into this evening. <laughs> now, obviously, you have such a wide range of characters to choose from here. That's so prolific. Who are mm -hmm. you going to go with? Yeah, again, there was a bit of a shortlist. Um, I think partly for the sake of gender balance, um, I'm going to go with Granny Weatherwax. Um, You're not the first person either to say <laughs> Granny Weatherwax. She, she's such an icon and she's just... <sighs> She's completely no nonsense. She's exactly the kind of person that you would want in a crisis. Um, she's a little bit kind of curmudgeonly and, you know, um, she's a bit of a misanthrope in some ways, but at the same time, she's extremely kind and she helps people fundamentally, you know, um, she is a good person. She would never do anything kind of underhand or, you know. <laughs> yeah. I also feel like she's not going to be easily impressed by Rivendell. I feel that again, <laughs> She's going to kind of be like, okay, we're here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even sure how, how chatty she would be, to be honest. And when I when I was thinking of, you know, my favourite characters and who I'd bring along, to be honest, a lot of them are a little bit kind of uncharismatic or unsociable, you know? I think those are the, the characters that I'm, I'm drawn to. I think because... In, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think maybe because in, in a, the format of a novel that's when you get to see those characters come alive because if if you met them in real life you probably wouldn't gain very much of who they are or what they're thinking mm. um because you know they're, they're quite quiet or they're separate from society but through the through the lens of a novel you can really um get into their brain so that's that's what I enjoy about these characters I think I mean from any interviews I've ever seen with Terry Pratchett he's a he was such an eloquent man as well so I think he'll he'll have stories for us if anyone's gonna get conversation out of Granny Weatherwax it's Terry Pratchett <laughs> so yeah <laughs> I think we'll be okay okay that's a really good uh, modern choice are we sticking with the modern theme for your next guest so this is my final guest um, okay. and this is my little bit of classics slipping uh -huh. in um, and in some ways it's a bit tricksy I think um, but my choice is Socrates. Oh. Um, <laughs> I only say it's tricksy because he wasn't an author. Uh, yeah. Socrates famously never wrote anything down and he was against you know the written word <laughs> so we don't have any of his writings at all so we can't call him an author um, but he is himself a character um, through the writings of Plato uh, yeah. because Plato writes all these dialogues with I mean supposedly based on the real life Socrates when he was alive and the things that he talked about but he is also a character of Plato's um, to some extent. Right. He's a little, a little tricksy. You, you don't yes. want to loophole So here. I'm going with Socrates the character. <laughs> okay. I don't know a great deal about Socrates. I'm trying to picture him in this setting and how he's going to interact with other guests. But I mean, he's going to have some stuff to tell us, right? Well, the, the thing with Socrates is this might be a little bit harsh, but I think <laughs> if I were to invite Socrates, I would probably... Um, give him an invite with a, a time like halfway through the evening. Um, you don't want him the whole time. I know what you mean. Like he's a lot. Um, 
if the, if the ancient Greeks are anything to go by, like he was very extra and he he irritated people a lot just by talking too much. Um, <laughs> but that's also one of the reasons that I want to bring him because I think from all the the real historical people that I've been exposed to from the classical world, he is the most interesting and kind of enigmatic um, and sort of. <laughs> unusual character um and that's why i would like to meet him um again he was sort of outside of society in some ways um, and he was very unconventional and the the reason that he was eventually executed by the state of athens was that he was being too controversial and he was putting these new strange ideas into people's heads um so he's interesting in that way he's a bit of a a maverick but he was also yeah. apparently you know extremely charismatic um and social in some other ways um and managed to to gain this almost cult-like following so yeah. i'd just like to meet the person that kind of brings those two things together perhaps we could invite him for like the petty fours you know the after dinner yeah. Yeah. And my other thought was that because I've invited um, Jude and Maggie, who yeah. both kind of wanted to access classics and struggled to do that, yes. I just think it would blow their minds if they got to meet Socrates. Oh, you could bring him out. Yeah, we take yeah. him through the... He's the kind of the entertainment. He's, there. Yeah. he's in his, you know, I was going to call it a toga then, but that's the Roman form, isn't it? But yeah, close on. enough. Is that the one? He'd be there. Yeah, probably a kit on, yeah. All, all uh, kitted out. He'd be looking great. Yeah, that would be amazing. I think this is... I feel like you can tell this is a novel evening that's come from your heart and yeah. it's, it's really, yeah, it's really indicative of you, which I love. I love when people come on here and are like, this is just people I would love to meet. who have inspired me. Yeah. And that's probably my favorite evenings that I do. And I'm, I, I'm trying to picture them all in Rivendell. I feel like the elves aren't ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that yeah that they can probably stay out of the way um I'm not sure how much they they'd have to say to the the people that I've invited but um yeah I think this this group of people together would probably have a great time and as I say it would it would be a, a treat for for some of the the sadder members of the group who uh, haven't managed to experience very much <laughs> and you're very you're a very considerate host I have to say <laughs> you've really taken into consideration the the needs of your guests so I think that gets you an A plus straight out the gate uh this is a lovely a lovely evening and thank you for sharing as well it's really lovely to hear when people are just kind of like talking about what they love this is, mm -hmm. this is why i love doing this and before i let you go and enjoy the rest of your evening uh in you know soggy soggy darkness that we're now into um i have to ask if you're reading anything at the moment yes um at the moment i'm reading 100 years of solitude by oh. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Oh. Um, <laughs> I try in my reading, I try to alternate between um, a classic, you know, whether that's a, an old classic or a modern classic um, and, you know, modern fiction that's come out within the last few years. So I'm on my classic phase at the moment. Um, and it, it's one that's been on my bookshelf for a while. Um, yeah. yeah. It's it's an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, as I was gonna say, it's quite a deep read, isn't it? So <laughs> yes, um, there's a lot of characters. A lot of the characters have the same name, um, so you have to really concentrate. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the storytelling is quite straightforward and to the point as well. Um, so it's not it's not overly flowery or literary. I wouldn't say um, quite a lot happens. It's you know it's quite plot heavy. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And do you know what's up next for your sort of modern? I think maybe Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. Um, I've got that on my shelf and it's only a short one. Um, so that might be next up. 
Very nice. Well, thank you so very much. The Shadow of Perseus. I I cannot wait to see how well this is going to do because honestly, I absolutely loved it. And I I know so many people who are such fans of Greek myth and I'm like screaming about this to them. Like, get it, read it. It's fantastic. And I'm sure it's going to do absolutely brilliantly. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I've loved it. Thank you, Danny. It's been nice. Thank you.